We're going to be in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. And I'll just read you the passage we're going to look at tonight, uh, and then we'll pray and get started. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage tonight um, that is somewhat provocative, as we look at this passage that tries to lay its finger on the great problem of humanity, as it tries to paint uh, the black background that the, the beauty of the gospel shines in contrast to, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would send your spirit and that you would help us to both understand and respond to these words. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I think it would be worthwhile for us to kind of lay the foundation of what we've been learning about in Romans so far, because you have to recognize, and you can do this very simply with me, you have to recognize that the beginning of verse 18 is the word for, right? A connective word. In other words, what he begins to say here in verse 18 is not a new thought, but a continuation. It's not a new argument, but related to what he was just talking about. And so with that in mind, we need to double back for a second. And remember that Paul opens this letter with an explanation of what he calls the good news, the gospel. He does that um, primarily in verse 3. He says that the gospel is concerning God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, the reason that good news is good news, he goes on and lays out in a very personal way over the next few verses. For example, he says in, uh, uh, in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's a consequence of that good news. Then he says in verse 7, to all those who in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Both of those are consequences. Even when he greets them with grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, those are consequences of that same good news. Now, he gets to kind of the key point of this entire letter. After a few more verses here of him explaining why he's writing, which is effectively, I've never been to your church. But I have a heart for the city of Rome and I long to come, but I've ran out of patience. And so I'm writing you to share with you what I've always wanted to share with you. And he starts off that big, here's what I want to share with you. He introduces, if you will, the main thrust of the entire book in verse 16 saying this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, there's that word again, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's following that statement that he says there in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In other words, if we're following his logic here, he's basically saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's powerful. 
It's powerful for salvation to all who believe, be them Jews or Gentiles. And then when he explains why it's powerful, he says it's because God's righteousness is available to us solely through faith. That's why he quotes the book of Habakkuk there in verse 17. And so the obvious question then becomes, who is this applicable to? Maybe you've had this experience where there's good news, but it's not applicable to you. Imagine, for example, uh, Barack Obama got on the horn tomorrow and he said, I have good news. We've decided to give a car to any family who doesn't have a car. That's incredibly good news. It's quite the offer, unless, of course, you have a car. It's good news for those who are carless, but since you have one, it's unapplicable to you, right? That's the way that all good news works. And so the question we need to ask here when Paul says it's the power of God for salvation is who is it applicable to? Who needs it? Now, let's double back for just a second and lay one more piece of introduction before we move forward. You see, that Christianity presents good news or a gospel is in this way similar to all other religions. In fact, it's similar to all other major philosophies of thought. In fact, it has something in comparison with each and every one of our individual lives and choices. And it's this, that like every religion, like every major philosophy, like the way we all live our lives, we all believe that something is wrong and needs to be fixed. That there's something that isn't right and needs to be changed. In other words, we look around at our life and we recognize that it's not some sort of stasis of perfection. And so every major religion begins with the question, what is wrong with the universe? If I can just illustrate, take Buddhism, for example. Buddhism says, well, we look around and we experience constant suffering. In fact, they go as far to say that life itself is suffering. That's a symptom, but what's the problem? Well, for the Buddhists, they answer, well, we only suffer because we desire. It's our wants and the fact that we don't have those wants met that creates in us suffering. You desire comfort and you don't have it, so you suffer. You desire food, but you don't have it, so you suffer. You desire warmth, but you don't have it, so you suffer. Then it's from that problem that Buddhism proposes a solution. Okay? And this is true of every religion. In fact, like I said, it's true of every major philosophy. Every major philosophy recognizes something's wrong here and then seeks to give us a way to change that. Even if you're intensely political, you're going to lay your finger on something and say, this is the problem that needs to change. Maybe you're going to say, if we could just get rid of that tea party. Or maybe on the other end, you're just saying, look, the problem is government's too big. If government's just smaller and it quits interfering with my life, then things will be the way it should be. This is just the natural way that the human mind works. And the truth is, each and every one of us, whether you consider yourself religious or not, you live your life as if there's a purpose in life. Or to put that in the language that we're talking about tonight, you live your life trying to resolve or fix or change something so that you achieve whatever you want to call the good life or a human flourishing or abundant life. It doesn't matter what you label it. That's a goal that we all set. And we may all have different diagnoses of the problem and different presented ways of fixing it. 
But like I said, on this, all religions agree that there's a problem. Now, the thing that makes Christianity unique and why it uses this word gospel, good news, is because unlike every other religion, philosophy, and even the way we approach our own lives, Christianity doesn't give us good advice. It doesn't give us the steps to fix the problem. It doesn't lay its finger on the problem and say, here's the problem and here is my platform on how to fix it. It doesn't say, if you just follow my teachings, then you will achieve, once again, like I said, human flourishing or heaven or nirvana, salvation, all of these words will do. Every other one presents the steps that can be taken, but Christianity is unique in that it says this is what God has done for you to fix the problem. That's what makes it good news. It's not good advice, here's what you can do. It's good news, here is what God has done. Now, that's important, and here's why, and this is what it has to do with tonight. Because I have discovered, as I've studied the Bible, that the, bro- the problem that the Bible presents, the issue that that good news is in response to, is way deeper than any other issue. In fact, just the fact that Christianity ultimately says, I can't fix this myself, makes it completely unique in the problem that it presents. Every other problem is presented, but the problem only goes deep enough so that there's something you yourself can do to fix it. You can live the good life. You can do the right thing. You can vote in the right way. You can abstain from these things. You can fulfill the eightfold path or keep the five pillars of Islam. Whatever it is, it's at least possible for you to do so. But the reason why Christianity says the world requires good news, the world requires for God to interfere and do something, is because it's something that we cannot do. And the truth is, and this is where I'm just being honest for myself here, the truth is, when I look at the assessment the Bible gives for the problem in the world, to me, it just resonates more deeply. To me, it just appears more honest. It looks like it's really gotten to the real bottom of the issue. Once again, just to put in personal terms for you, just for a second, think with me on this. Take your own standard of what is right or what needs to be done. Take your own standard of what is good and just answer me this simple question. Do you do it all the time without fail? Or can you relate more with what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 where he says, the things I know I should do is exactly what I don't do. And the things I know I'm not supposed to do, those are the very things I practice. Which of us hasn't recognized that fact? That even if we feel like we know the right thing to do, we can't always find it in ourselves to do it. In fact, we find almost a law within ourselves that works contrary to that, that is constantly self-defeating. And so what's fascinating about this section in Romans chapter 1 as he begins to present the problem that the gospel addresses is how deep the problem goes and where he places it. Look at his logic here. He says, Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What he says here is that we all dwell under God's wrath. Now, you may have noticed I used the phrase we all, and there's a reason for that. Romans 1, the passage that we're looking at this week, next week, and the following week is difficult. 
And it has been constantly misunderstood, used, and abused in terrible ways. In fact, i got to be honest, we are not in the most difficult passage of it tonight. It will get harder as we get on. But one of the primary reasons it has been so used and abused is because the church has a tendency to read this chapter and see it as a passage about them and not a passage broadly about all of us. And so we draw this distinction, and there's Christians, and this is who we are, and then there's the rest of the world, and I'm sorry, but the Bible says this is who you are. That is not the meaning of this passage. By the time Paul gets to chapter 3, he's going to say that everyone is condemned, therefore God can show mercy on everyone. In other words, it's much more helpful to read this passage as about us collectively, instead of about some ubiquitous them that's off in the distance and removed from us. And what he says here is that God's wrath is constantly, present tense, continuously being revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now, I don't know about you, but because of things like the Westboro Baptists, I'm not so comfortable with using the word the wrath of God. Do you have that same experience as me? Do you feel like that's a natural thing? As soon as we use a phrase like that, the wrath of God, that we instantly get lumped, on, lumped in with them. We're, we're friends now, and what we believe essentially is that the world is headed to hell in a handbasket and that God is just waiting to pour out his wrath, you know, like some, uh, some wicked stepchild. I don't know why he's a stepchild, but some wicked child with, a, you know, a magnifying glass and ants that he's just going to destroy. In fact, can I be honest? When I hear the word wrath, the very first thing that comes to my mind is a lyric from a British electronic band named Prodigy. Probably because in the song they repeat it a thousand times. But what they say is, feel the wrath of a psychopath. And for some reason, those two words, wrath and psychopath, go well together. Not just because they rhyme, but there's a sense where that's what we think of when we think of wrath. There's a sense where wrath instantly recalls to our mind some sort of flying off the handle in anger. Completely out of control anger, right? In fact, if you're not into electronic music, in other words, most of you, let me put it in terms that you'll probably understand. If you've seen The Shining, I think Jack Nicholas's character, Jack, in The Shining, Johnny, right? I think he is probably the best American culture personification of wrath, right? Chasing his wife and his son to give them their medicine, you know, breaking down doors with an axe. To me, I feel like that's the American understanding of wrath. And so we take a word like that, and that's how we see God, right? We see him just breaking down the door of humanity with an axe to give us what we deserve. But you see... That's the danger of communication. Whenever we're talking with anyone, we have a tendency to bring our own definitions and preconceived ideas into their words where they don't belong and therefore misconstrue what they're saying. And I think that's what's happening here. So let me tell you what the biblical idea of wrath is. When it talks about the wrath of God, this is what it is. It's God's consistent and persistent opposition against evil. That's what wrath is. In fact, the Bible itself recognizes that it's possible to be angry and sinless. It tells us so in Ephesians 5 when it says, be angry and do not sin. Or to put it in an old saying, it is possible for us as human beings even to be good and angry. 
But with God, if he is truly God, therefore he is truly just, then there's no sinful side to his anger. There's no out of control to his anger. In fact, it's not even necessarily emotional in the sense of, you know, boiling near the surface, see it written on his face type anger at all. This is speaking of his direct and consistent opposition to evil. Now, that's an important thing. Because the truth is, unless you're a pantheist, in other words, unless you believe that God's divine spirit flows through all things, we all recognize that evil is a problem. Now, we may label that evil differently, but we look around and we know that evil is the issue. If it weren't for a God that is consistently and persistently opposed against that evil, there's no guarantee of justice. Here's my point. If God is a righteous judge, then his consistent determination against evil is a good thing. It leads to justice. It leads to the rectification of things. It leads to the eradication of evil. In other words, God's wrath is a demonstration of his goodness because he is just. Nonetheless, what makes God's wrath difficult for us is the fact that we are targets of it. Right? That's what it says, that the wrath of God is revealed against all, not the most ungodly, not the most unrighteous, but all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And notice it says here, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We'll come back to that for a second, but follow his logic here in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, he says that we know who God is. Humanity as a whole, that we know God. You see, if we weren't aware there was a God, then it would be so unfortunate and inappropriate for for him to hold us responsible to our actions, right? If you don't know you're in a real sports game versus a practice, you know, that makes an entire difference in the way that life goes. If you don't realize you're on the job, if you will, working for a creator, if you don't realize that you were created and will be held responsible to that creator, and then at the end of your life, the creator shows up and says, well, man, you really blew it. We'd all recognize that's unfair. This is a very important question, isn't it? Because right now, half a billion people, one-fourteenth of the human population, believes that there is no God. And it may be true that an atheist doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, but according to this passage, the Bible doesn't believe in atheists. That's the claim that it's making here. Do you see what it says? It says, look again in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How can that possibly be the case? Look, he continues in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Do you see the claim Paul makes here? He says, saying, I didn't know there was a God, saying, I didn't know I'd be held responsible, saying, I didn't know I was created, is inexcusable. That's the claim that Paul makes here. And that seems like a very offensive claim to make, doesn't it? Like I said, we're talking about specifically here, 
half a billion people who would say, but I don't believe there's a God. I don't think there's any evidence that points to a God. In fact, I've read specifically uh, atheists sometimes who say that it would be incredibly unfair for them to find out that there was a God because they've looked at the evidence and there's not enough evidence to prove it. But here, Paul says, oh, yes, there definitely is. He says that it's plain to them, not just because it's discoverable. This is important. Paul's not saying here that God is knowable if you look hard enough. Look again at what he says in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Not could be plain to them. Not should be made plain to them. It is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Do you see who's active in that relationship? It's not because man is looking for it. It's because God is revealing it. And he says here that what can be known about God is plain, right out there in the front. And then to explain what he means, he goes on, he says, his invisible attributes are clearly perceived. Does that seem odd to anyone else? Paul loves paradoxes. And here we have a pretty good one, right? How is it that we can see something invisible? But he says here that the invisible attributes are clearly seen since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, he says, when we look at the creation itself, that we find ourselves not just in, but a part of, that's all the evidence we need for, it says, God's divine power and his divine nature right there. Divine power. In other words, that means we look at creation and we go, this came from a source that is evidently powerful. Just look at what he's made. Divine nature is in, if there's a God who made all these things, he must be God. And an inference from that, if there is a God, I'm not him. And a final inference from that, if I'm not God and there is a God who made me, I'm responsible to him. Okay? In other words, it's not that we can look out at nature and we can perceive and understand everything about God, but enough to know that there is a God who we are responsible to. That is the claim that Paul makes. And he says here that it's clearly seen in creation itself. Now, when he says the things that are made, he uses a very specific Greek word that I think will sound familiar to you. It's the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English word poem. Okay, now the thing about a poem is a poem always has an author. That's what makes it poetry. It is the verbal or... uh, the written representation of some specific person's thoughts, feelings, opinions, right? Basically, what Paul is saying here is that creation itself is God's poem, God's work of art. And in the same way that you can look at a painting and go, I can tell from the brushstrokes and the fact that when I look at this, it's not, you know, some, uh, some magic picture. Uh, but when I look at it, I see a house because the guy wanted you to see a house. And even if you think to yourself, but isn't there such a thing as, a, uh, as an abstract artist? Yes, but the only reason that painting is abstract is because the artist wanted it to be, right? It still manifests intention. It still shows purpose. And so what Paul is saying here is that science may go and look at the world and say, I see no creator in the world. And Paul says, but you do see the creator through his work. You see his handiwork. You see his fingerprints on creation itself. Now, I think the primary word that comes to mind, the one that's important is this word purpose. 
Let me just give you an illustration. My wife shared with me last night a Facebook app uh, called uh, something like What Would I Say or What Can I Say or What Should I Say. Effectively, what it does is it plunges into the depths of every word I've ever used on Facebook and recreates a status that I might actually say. And it's kind of fun because as you read through it, most of them are outright nonsense. And the ones that do come out that make any sort of sense don't make any sense whatsoever, right? They're grammatically correct, but they're hilariously odd, okay? Now, notice two things about that. One, that this bot that's putting things together isn't generating its own thoughts. It has to steal mine. It has to take pieces of my vocabulary and reconnect them. Second, and most importantly... The thing that makes it so funny is that it's got no intention of its own, no purpose. It's just random connected words disconnected from their original intention. Now, let me share, you, share with you something that's very interesting. When we look at the things of science, and it, this is true in the microscopic, and it's true in the most large universal scale, we see intention or purpose. We see it all the time. We look at our bodies and we see that each piece works together to make life happen. Just think of all the processes that are involved right now in me as I talk to you. As my brain is formulating uh, thoughts and sending them to my vocal cords that are vibrating at just the right pitch. And my mouth is opening and closing and my tongue is flexing. All leading to meaning that you yourselves can understand with your own completely different process. But see, here's the problem. This is where science goes, well, yeah, all of these things are true, but ultimately these are things that have been derived from evolution. And I'm talking about evolution in the fullest, most explanatory sense, as if the scientific process of evolution can explain all there is and all that will ever be. The problem with that approach is that it's a lot like looking at a machine you've never seen before, looking at all of its parts, disconnecting it, putting it back together, figuring out how each and every part serves the whole, and thinking you know what it is. You see, that doesn't work. Unless you understand what something was built for, to take a typewriter. Imagine that you have, you're from a completely different planet. You, don't, you aren't familiar with the alphabet. You aren't familiar uh, with writing, even. And you come along a typewriter. Like I said, you can take it apart. You can see its moving pieces. You can probably put it back together. You may even be able to recreate it. But if I ask you, what is that? You can't answer because you don't understand its purpose. See, maybe, speaking of typewriters, maybe you've heard science's explanation of the world we have. Is it possible we could have a world like this that doesn't need God as a creator? And this is how this argument generally goes. If we have an incredibly long period of time, billions and billions of years, and we have an infinite amount of possible universes, then we have a lot of room for at least one of them to become what we know today. The illustration they use involves typewriters. They say, imagine a room that has an infinite amount of monkeys. And those infinite amount of monkeys have an infinite amount of typewriters, and just for an infinite amount of time, they're all banging away on the keys. It is at least possible that one of those will type out perfectly the entire works of Shakespeare. You see, that's the glory of infinite statistics. It gives you infinite room for possibility. But never have I heard a scientist 
create an argument and say that that self-same group of infinite monkeys, if given infinite time, could create a typewriter. Because a typewriter involves purpose. See the difference? And so the problem is, what we see in the universe involves purpose. And science likes to truncate things and say, we don't need God to find meaning. But when you ask them, what's the meaning of life? They're left with their jaw standing open because we don't want to settle with, well, survival of the fittest is the meaning of life because that doesn't resonate with us. I'll come back to that in a second. It doesn't work. It's not satisfying. And so if if this is all there is, and it came from millions of years of possibility and chance, then your relationship with a loved one in the big picture is meaningless. And your great accomplishment in life, even if you make the history books, a billion years from now is meaningless. Without purpose, there is no real meaning. There's just stuff. And scientists are so aware of this problem. I read a quote today from Dr. Frick. This is one half. Yes, that's his actual name. This is one half of the doctors that discovered DNA. And he said that biologists must constantly remind themselves that the appearance of purpose in everything is not real. And that it can all be explained with evolution. Why do they constantly have to tell themselves that? Because they're constantly confronted with purpose and meaning. Now, I'm not just talking about scientists, so let me bring this back to earth. Maybe you're here tonight and you find yourself in the place of being an atheist. And you go, it is not clearly seen to me. It is not evident to me in creation that God exists. Here Paul uses the word plain, as in plain as the nose on my face. I don't feel like God is that visible in my life. Remember this. Remember that you yourself are part of creation. In fact, when Paul says in verse 19... Um, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. It's literally shown it in them. He uses the little Greek particle N, in. If you're part of creation, then you can look in and of yourself and see the evidences of God. Let me lay out how this works. If you're not a Christian, in fact, if you don't believe in God, let me just ask you one simple question. Is there anything in this world that you believe beyond the shadow of a doubt or opinion is wrong? And whether the person who's doing it feels it's wrong or the culture they're a part of feels it wrong, feels it's wrong or anything, it's still wrong and should be put a stop to. Maybe it's uh, the servitude of women. Maybe it's... uh, Well, let's just jump to the most easy illustration. Take the Holocaust. Okay, if we're just synapses firing, if we're just physical DNA, if we just like the human kingdom have evolved to this place and are just a higher level of animal, then how can you say that that's wrong? Because if we look at nature, you don't feel bad when the strong animal eats the weak, do you? And yet we'd make a, make a distinction in human life and we'd go, but it's not okay for the strong humans to take advantage of the weak. Now, for me as a Christian, I have a very easy answer to that. I believe that mankind is created in the image of God and therefore they have a dignity that comes along with that that gives them intrinsic value and therefore makes them worth, uh, makes them worth and worthy of being protected. No matter who they are. 
No matter what they believe, no matter how old they are, human dignity is there because they are God's creation created in his image. But if you don't believe in God, what foundation do you have for that morality? Because the truth is, if we say, well, it's part of nature, you have to remember that in Tennyson's words, nature is red in tooth and claw. It's a place of violence, of survival of the fittest, and yet you can't shake that feeling. And so you really only have two options. One is to throw morality out the window like Nietzsche did, when he basically said, if God is dead, then there is no such thing as morality. In fact, he took it further and he said, if God is dead, then there's no meaning in life. If it's just, like I said, the firing of synapses and a bunch of physical things that evolved over years and years that has no particular meaning to the whole human story, but just is one random occurrence, like that abstract painting, then like I said, that meaningful, loving relationship you have is meaningless. And even though it may feel good now, if you just stop and sit for a second, you'll realize that the feelings you have are just chemical responses to some sort of physical manifestation that your ancestors found to be appropriate for breeding. And the truth is this, and this is what's important. The truth isn't, what are you going to do about that, huh, atheist? The truth is, the truth is, no matter what, no matter what I point to, you're still going to believe those things are wrong. Even if you're forced to say, well, I can't give any reason, but the morality is there. And so basically what I'm saying is my premise, God existed, created human beings, and therefore, because they're in the image of God, they have dignity, leads to the conclusion that says, therefore, life is to be protected, honored, respected, etc. If your premise is there is no God and your conclusion is the same, instead of giving up the conclusion, you can also change the premise. You see, that's what Paul says here. Paul says that built in and of ourselves is the manifest evidence of God because not only do you have a sense of right, you have a feeling of obligation to that right. You believe that not just is it not right for you or not right for them, but there is an obligation to pursue right. If you will, in the oldest uh, logical argument for God that applies here, If we find laws in and of ourselves, then there must be a lawmaker. And even if you're not a Christian, if you have these deep causes, because the truth is, I know as a pastor, I've talked with enough unbelievers and even atheists to know that they have a deep sense of morality. I don't have some sort of illusion as these people who don't believe in God are just the most wicked, you know, family-eating, you know, uh, people. We all know incredibly moral people, but the truth is that morality points more to God than their immorality does. Now, we'll see the immorality does too. That's where we're going in the weeks to come, but just recognize that, that we have built in and of ourselves the evidence of not just the fact that God is existing, not just the fact that he created us, but that we're responsible to him and that ultimately he'll set things right. And like I said, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in God, you should at the very least, if these things are true, wish there was a God. You should wish that there was someone to supply the meaning, to make these things valuable, to bring about ultimate justice, to make sure that wrongs are rectified, to protect the weak from the strong, etc. But Paul says it clearly here that you do know. So what's the problem then? You see, here's the issue. We would like to say maybe the human problem is ignorance. We just don't know. 
But look again at what he says here in verse 19. He says at the very end there, men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see where the malfunction is? It's in our response to the truth, not in the truth itself. He says we clearly know that God is real, that we'll be held responsible to him, but we suppress that truth. Now, once again, to look at the Greek grammar here, it says that God is continually revealing who he is, continuously making plain in creation who he is. So it's not just, boom, the world was created, that's the evidence of God. It's every moment of every day he is making plain these things. As it says in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day unto day utters speech. And there's not a nation or a tongue that can't understand the language of creation that glorifies God. But at the same time here, it says that we are suppressing the truth, and that is also in the continual present tense. God is continually revealing, and we are continually suppressing. That's what it says. Let me give you an illustration. This is if you had one of those really big springs. I'm not talking about the one in your mattress. I'm talking about the big ones, the ones that the only way to keep compressed is to stand on top of, and that presses it down. That's what he's talking about here. That we're putting all of our weight as human beings on top of the truth to keep it down. And if we were to just take one second and step off, it would bounce right back up. It would bounce right back into view. That's what he says. That we are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. In unrighteousness is important. The challenge that Paul is making, the observation he's making about humanity, is it's not the issue that we don't know the truth. It's that we want to ignore the truth. You know what this is like? This is like a guy who comes up with a genius plan to never get a speeding ticket. And he thinks to himself, you know what? I'm just never going to look higher than three feet. That way I'll never see a speeding sign and I will never know how fast I should be going. And so they can't hold me accountable because I didn't know. Right? But we all recognize there's ignorance. I don't know. And there's willful ignorance. I won't know. And Paul says that this here is willful ignorance. That it's not that we don't know the truth or that the truth is hard to find. It's not that God is somehow hiding. It's that we are suppressing the reality of God. And here's why. Because just like that speeder who wants to break the law and get away with it, so also we wish that God wasn't real. Because that would allow us to live in the selfish and self-centered way. In fact, it would allow us to live as if we're God. To determine our own path. To make our own decisions. If nobody created me and I am just a pile of slime, then I can live like a pile of slime. Now, none of us may consciously attain that. And remember, this is not just them. It's not just the atheists or the scientists. We all, according to Paul, have this tendency to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And once again, I'll demonstrate it to you. Think of a standard that you have that when people break just makes you so angry and all you can think about is seeing justice be done. And what about when you get caught making the same mistake? Do you have that same vindictive sense of justice? Do you slap a handcuff on yourself and drag yourself straight down to the authorities? No, you instantly begin to excuse yourself. And you go, well, but my circumstances. Or you say, well, you know what the truth is? If you guys have been paying attention to politics a lot lately, there's been a lot of spin doctoring going on, right? 
people just trying to adjust the story so at least it doesn't look as bad as it did. And we found some people who just seem to be beyond the spin doctors, like uh, uh, Ford, the mayor of Toronto right now, the crack mayor, as he's called, right? He's just beyond savable. His spin doctor quit months ago. But the truth is, it's not just politicians that try and spin things. We do it all the time. We take the standards that we believe in, even the most small ones, and when it applies to us, we just justify them away. That is our nature. Because the truth is, in the words of C.S. Lewis, the problem with humanity is not that we are broken and need to be fixed. It is that we are rebels who need to lay down our arms. That's what he says here. Do you want to know what the problem with the world is today? It's you. It's me. It's something so deep in our heart. That's where the problem is. The problem is not environment. The problem is not something we can fix because we are the problem. That's what the Bible declares. That's why the good news is necessary. Because we could not do what was necessary because there's something inherently wrong in the center of us. And so it doesn't matter what truth God presents to us, we will always twist, ignore, obscure, hide, and suppress it so that we can continue to live in the self-destructive and other destructive way that we choose. Now, I think we all recognize that that's a problem. Not just because of what it causes, but how do you fix a problem like that? Once again, going back to C.S. Lewis, he would basically call the fixing of this repentance. Repentance is how we go back to God. And it's not just something we do when we go back to God. It's literally the going back to God itself. It involves a surrendering to the will of someone else. It involves recognizing that you were going your own way, which was the wrong way, and saying, I'm now going to go your way, which is the right way. That's what repentance is. In fact, Lewis basically says that is a form of death. That's what makes it so hard. But this is what he points out. He says this. He says that the problem is, that it's only a bad man that needs to repent and only a good one who's capable of it. But the good one needs no repentance. And so we have a problem because of that willful resistance, because of that same suppressing truth heart we have, because of the fact that we have hardened our heart against God and no longer can we even perceive. In fact, you know what the word suppression makes me think of? It makes me think of a silencer on a pistol. Okay? In fact, we call those a suppressor. What it does is it takes the sound of a bullet and reduces it so that you cannot hear the gun if you're elsewhere and you cannot track the gun and know where the shot came from. Effectively, what Paul says here is that we can all feel the gun of God. But we've screwed a silencer into the barrel so that we won't be reminded of where it came from. Like I said, we've hardened our heart layer after layer, callous after callous, so that the thunk of God's reality on our life, the thunk of conviction and judgment, the thunk of God's wrath itself is just this hollow little tink noise when it used to hit us right at the core. So how do you fix a problem like that? See, this is the glory. The truth is here, all we see is that there's enough in nature to condemn us. But there's not enough to save us. All he says is because of the reality of things, we are without an excuse. That means when we stand before the judge, just like that speeding, uh, don't look at the speeding sign guy, we're without excuse. We can't say, I didn't know. So there's enough in nature to condemn us, but not to save us. And theologians have a way of talking about this. They call what we've been looking at tonight, general revelation. 
general in the sense that it's available to all, general in the sense that it speaks only of the generalities of who God is. Like I said, this doesn't tell you about God's character, but it does tell you that he is, that he's powerful, and that you're responsible to him. And then theologians usually contrast that with God's special revelation. That's where God specifically reveals who he is to a specific group of people. One of the best and most accessible examples we have of that is right here, the Bible. God revealing who he is, his plan, and what he's going to do to people. But we also sometimes talk about final revelation. Because the Bible says that when Jesus came, he doesn't just make the invisible attributes clear like creation does. It says in Colossians that in him, the invisible God is made manifest. That he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In fact, he said to one of his disciples, take this on if you're not familiar with Jesus. He said to them, look, if you've seen me, you've seen God. That's a powerful statement. In Philippians, Paul himself says that what happened in Jesus was God became man, that God humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, took on flesh, became man, and manifested, not just in the painting, or let me put it in a different way. Let's take, instead of a poem, a novel. The gospel message is that God wrote himself into the story as a character. That we don't just see who the author is in the telling of the story, but that he entered into the story and changed the meaning of it by his presence. Okay, and so we talk about Jesus being special revelation. This is the glory. Let me use C.S. Lewis's words to explain it again. He puts it this way. He says, effectively... We needed a bit of God's goodness to be placed in us. The Old Testament uses a bunch of phrases. It says that what we need is a new heart, that we have a heart of stone, and we effectively need a heart transplant, a completely new beginning, a new motor because the one we have is dead. Okay? And he says we need a bit of God inside of us, but there's a problem. You see, God in and of himself does not need to repent, nor can he submit. If he truly is perfect and good and ultimate, then submission is not something that he need do. And repentance is not something that he can do. But what if God became a man, took on humanity, and therefore lived a life of submission to God, a life of obedience, which is once again what Philippians chapter 2 says, that Jesus humbled himself and made himself of no reputation and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Then, as the gospel declares, then, if Jesus did that in our place, on our behalf, for us, if he's made available for us his own life, then we have the hardest part of repentance done for us, the part that we can't do. And all we have to do is take that dying to self that Jesus did in our place as our own. That is effectively the message of the gospel. Like I said, it's good news because we can't fix our own hearts. If our hearts are the problem, then what we need, as I said earlier, is a heart transplant. And that's what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. This is glorious news. Because God doesn't just look at us and say, look, I've shown you who I am, that I'm worthy of worship and praise and all of your life, and yet you chose to go another way. So wrath. Even though we'd all recognize, as laid out here, we're without excuse. If that's really the case, if all the rules are presented on the table, if the instruction manual is still in the box of the game of life, 
then we are without excuse if we don't play by the rules. But that's not the end of the story. God doesn't end there. Not only is he actively revealing himself and actively pouring out his wrath, but he is actively pursuing us by sending Jesus Christ to die the death that we deserve, to live the life of obedience and submission that we cannot live, and to make it freely available to us. That is the glory of the gospel. And now it's not just that we can know about God in Jesus Christ, but we can actually know him, as in have a relationship with him. That's the difference between knowing about Barack Obama and knowing Barack Obama, right? What Jesus accomplished is not just showing us who God was, but inviting us into relationship with God so that we can be continuously knowing God. That's the glorious message of the gospel. That's the good news. Now, how do we respond to this? The truth is, we all respond in the same way. If our problem is ultimately that we take the truth of who God is, and it doesn't matter if it's general revelation or special, it doesn't matter if it's creation and its general call to worship God or specific commandments given in Scripture, if our tendency is to suppress that, then the opposite of that, instead of standing on top of our Bibles and saying, I interpret you and I'm going to twist everything I want to change out of you, to put the Bibles above us and say, this interprets me. You see, the opposite of suppression is submission. And if you're not a believer, then that submission begins with recognizing the truth that you are a sinner, that you are deserving, as it says here, of God's wrath, his righteous judgment because you have sinned, and that God has made available to you complete salvation in Jesus Christ. That's where your submission begins. But for the rest of us as Christians, the life of Christianity, according to Martin Luther, is one of continual repentance. In other words, our issue today is to continue that act of submission. That every day we would respond to the truth that God reveals to us by putting it over the top of us and saying, this is who I am because this is who God says I am. This is how I live because this is how God says I live. This is what's valuable because this is what God says is valuable. You know what? That's easier to do because of the gospel. Because although in creation we see that God is powerful, in Jesus we see that God is loving. Jesus told a story of two sons. And one of the sons comes to his father and he says, I want you to give me your entire, the entire inheritance that's coming to me now. And at that point his father is dead to him. He leaves and he goes and he wastes that entire inheritance living in the way he's always wanted to live. He lives the party lifestyle. He has lots of friends. He has the best everything has to offer. But the truth is, like happens with great fortunes, the money runs out. Not only that, but the foreign country he's in has a famine, and so now everybody's in want. Work is hard to find, and the only thing he can find is to become the slave of a guy who owns pigs. And this guy is not a good boss. He's such a bad boss that it says that this son longed for the food that the pigs ate. So he's not very well paid, not very well taken care of, and he has a revelation. He says, you know what? Even my father's servants make it better than I am right now. I'll go back. I'll say, God, or, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired servants and hire me on. 
And so he has this plan and he goes. But while he's a long way off, Jesus says, his father sees him down the road, runs to him, embraces him, throws a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, and kills the fatted calf and says, today we rejoice because my son who was dead is now alive. Now let me just make a simple observation. For whatever reason, that son believed that he had a better life apart from his father than with him. But if he can return from an act of rebellion like that, an act of betrayal like that, if he can return from that and experience such incredible welcome and love, do you think he'll ever be tempted to leave again? No, because he now understands that God doesn't just want what's right for him, but what's best for him. See, I slipped right out of the parable and into its meaning. I apologize for that, but that's the punchline. We're like the sun. We're the ones who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And what we discover in Jesus Christ is that God's love trumps our rebellion. There's a major difference between serving who you believe is a harsh taskmaster that you, master that you want to escape from or avoid the rules altogether or just get out of the final sentence and the one that you realize loves you so much that he died in your place. That takes that heart of stone, those layers of calluses, and it just melts it. You see, if God is loving, so loving that despite our failures, resistance, and rebellion to him, he still went through the effort to die for us. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus drank the fullness of God's wrath for us. In other words, God took everything we deserve, the whole punishment available, as it says here in Romans 1, upon himself. That is an incredible act of sacrifice and love. If that is the case, then how can we not submit? How can we not trust him today? How can we not give him our whole lives? In fact, this is how Paul finishes the entire argument of the book of Romans. In chapter 12, verse 1, after laying out the fullness of the gospel, he says, I beg you, therefore, brethren, because of God's mercy, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. As you can imagine, that means everything you are, everything you have, at great cost to yourself, a living sacrifice to God. And he says, which is holy and acceptable and is your reasonable response of worship. You see, if that is what God has done for us, then our very lives in response is reasonable. And not only that, but it's safe and it's good. And so we submit to God's truth instead of suppress it because there's this great truth of God's love for us that makes it easy. Let's pray. Father, as we respond tonight, I pray that we would do it with the fullness of who we are, that we would do it with the fullness of our vocal cords, with the fullness of our minds, Lord, with our bodies in tune, that even in this little limited way, Lord, we would recognize what is plain in creation, that you are worthy of thanksgiving and glory, and that we would respond by giving you thanks and glorifying you in worship. And I pray as well, Lord, that it would spill over beyond our lives, Lord. If there are truths that even tonight we are actively suppressing and ignoring, if we are just twisting what you've revealed to us so that we can remain in rebellion against you, Lord, I pray that we would surrender. Not surrendering to some sort of awful warlord who will take every advantage of us, Lord, but surrendering 
to the God who loved us so much that he took his, our penalty on himself. We know, Lord, the issue is not just that you were powerful and right, and even that you were good, Lord, but that you were love. Open our eyes to that tonight, and as we worship, help us to see the goodness of God and know you fully, Lord, in relationship. We pray this in your name. Amen.